And you are from kindergarten, kindergarten up through fourth grade. You are uh, welcome to depart. The rest of you, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. Last week, I actually jumped to John chapter 11 because it was resurrection and it was Easter. And because I was allowed to do that, um, we did. So we will go backwards, uh, just one chapter to John chapter 10. We'll be looking at John chapter 10, um, verses 22 through 42 today. And the idea is that uh, Jesus, again, brings division because of who he is and what he has done. Now, oftentimes, when we look at the Gospel of John, Jesus is revealing himself uh, but he oftentimes early in the gospel is revealing himself as the Messiah, as, as co-equal with God. He does that with his disciples. But in John chapter 10, we see that he actually does it with the leaders, with the Pharisees. So, having said that, um, please hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the columnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for good work that, you are, that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he had called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. So here we are. Uh, when, when you look at what's going on in John chapter 10, you see a, a very stark division that occurs. As, as a matter of fact, when you um, see in verse 21, uh, that I didn't read, it says, others said after this is, again, after he had opened the eyes of the man born blind in, in chapter 9, after he had talked about being the good shepherd, they said, these are not of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? People were beginning to believe in Jesus, to believe that he was who he said he was. And even at the end of John chapter 10, in verse 42, it says, and many believed in him there. You see, Jesus was bringing division among himself and the Jews. And really what we see in this passage is that division just continues to occur. 
Now again, let me preface what we're saying here. In John chapter 22, we see this that is at the Feast of Dedication, which took place in Jerusalem. Now this Feast of Dedication that we see is a feast, but it's not a feast that we see in the Old Testament law, but rather it was a feast uh, that actually celebrates uh, when Judas uh, uh, Maccabeus actually um, restored the temple. Because in the intertestimonial period, about 400 years in between the writing of Malachi and the writing of, or the coming of Christ, and then the New Testament, we see that the Jews were an oppressed people. And one of the ways that they were being oppressed was by a Greek king, and this Greek king, uh, his name was uh, King Antiochus Epiphanes, and King uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, what he did to the Jews is he actually brought in false idols, Greek gods, and he actually tore down parts of the temple and placed within the temple, within Solomon's temple, within the, well, the restored temple, um, he actually placed within them Greek gods. And so the Jews were very upset about that because, again, they have one God that they worship. And so in the midst of this, um, Judas um, uh, Maccabeus um, actually had a revolt, and he expelled the Greeks and restored the temple. And in the midst of the restoration of the temple, the people began to celebrate what they would call the Feast of Dedication. Today, they call that, in the Jewish religion, the Feast of Lights. It's in wintertime. They call that Hanukkah. So Hanukkah, sometimes people, Christians will say, well, when do we celebrate, why do we celebrate Hanukkah? Why do the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, but we don't celebrate that or have anything to do with that? Well, that was because uh, we don't see that in the Lord's law given to us in the Pentateuch to celebrate that ongoing. But in the midst of this wintertime festival, Jesus is in the columnade. He's walking um, in the columnade of Solomon, which is sort of the outer part of the temple, and the Jews actually descend upon him. And Jesus is going to become very divisive with what he has to say here. And I'm going to skip down to the bottom portion here, um, because this is really what they're getting at. In in John chapter uh, 10, verse 30, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. When he says, I and the Father are one, we see that Jesus is now making himself out to be God. And so they begin to think, well, now Jesus is saying that not only is God the only God, but he is a God as well. There's a misunderstanding there about the Trinity because Jesus has not fully revealed all of this. But what we do find in the midst of this is that Jesus says, there is a unity in will between God, the Father, and himself. What he wants to do And what the will of the Father is to do are the same. You see, Jesus was beginning to begin to restore and reconcile all things to himself. He was beginning to inaugurate a new kingdom, and he was saying that this is what God had promised long, long ago, that the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to all the people of the world, and that I and the Father's wills are aligned. But he went beyond that, when he said that we also have a unity of works. Notice what he says uh, about the works of the Father. In verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, now this is reiterating John chapter 5, verse 36, where he says, I only do the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Now again, the Jews, the Jewish leaders were picking up stones to stone him because he's saying that you're saying that your works are the same thing as God's works. I mean, this is... This is very brazen stuff by Jesus. 
But he also, not only is there a unity in will, not only there's a unity of works, but he actually is saying that there's a unity in essence, where he says, I and the Father are one. Not only are his works my works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, in verse 38, and I am in the Father. And so the Jews were recognizing what's going on, and Jesus actually picks out um, Psalm 82, verse 6. And Psalm 82, verse 6, is, it's an enigmatic portion of Scripture where it, Jesus is quoting, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. But in verse 7, it says, nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. So essentially, the, the Jews are coming up against Jesus and Jesus says, you're getting upset with me because I'm saying that I and the God, I am, I and the Father are one. Don't you know that in your scriptures, um, that the men of God who receive the revelation from God are also called God's little g there? Now, he's using this, I think, um, in this way. D.A. Carson, the, the, the noted commentator, says this, in the heat of their opposition... In the heat of their opposition to what they hear Jesus to be saying, they are partly right. He does make himself equal with God. Partly wrong, this fact does not establish a competing God. And profoundly mistaken, they have not grasped the drift of their own scriptures to see how Jesus fulfills them. Nor have they known God well enough to perceive that the revelation he is and brings is in continuity with and the capstone of the revelation of God already provided. You see, what was going on is that the Jews were thinking that the Messiah, when he would come, would be like another Judas Maccabeus, that he would throw off the, the chains of the Romans, and that he would establish an earthly kingdom that would rule and reign, and that would be, essentially, it would allow the Jews to have dominion over all the world. They didn't understand the sacrifice that was going to be necessary in order for them to be saved. They didn't understand that the Messiah would come and in Isaiah 53 be the suffering servant who would take upon himself all the sins of the world. And what Jesus is saying is Jesus is essentially saying in, in verse 82, verse 6, is you guys don't even know your Bible. You claim to, to quote it all the time, and yet you don't understand what it is actually alluding to. This reminds me of um, a time when I was in, in seminary, and I had a uh, seminary professor, his name was Richard Pratt, and, uh, and he was, he's probably my favorite seminary professor because he, he broke us down to build us up. And I remember asking him a question about the Old Testament. And in the midst of the Old Testament class, um, we were talking about the different sacrifices and somebody brought up that you know, all sin is the same. And I remember asking the question, well, well, Dr. Pratt, isn't all sin the same? And he looked at me and he shook his head and he said, do you even read your Bible? And I'm like, well, not unless you assign it, you know, not unless I have to, you know, I mean, this is what's going on. But I was, I was, I was, I was hurt a little bit. He's a little snarky. Uh, I forgive him as the Lord Jesus does as well. But uh, what he was saying was in the Old Testament, you had greater sacrifices for greater sins. If you were the high priest and you sinned, then there was a big bull that you would have to actually sacrifice. If you were a poor person who couldn't afford it, you could actually bring a grain offering. 
for your sin. Different sacrifices meant the same. Now, in one sense, it is true that all sin compared to the infinite holiness of God is the same, okay? But certainly, we would say that, you know, if, if, we, if we think about harming someone and versus actually harming someone, those are two different degrees of the same sin. Now, within our hearts and with, as it relates to the infinite holiness of God, certainly they all fall short. However, there is a difference. There just is. Now, in the same way, Jesus is saying to the Jews, you don't understand what the Old Testament was about. You don't understand that from the very beginning, God was saying that he was going to send one who would begin to put everything back together. Everything that is broken, he's going to begin to fix. And that's why I'm here. That's why when Jesus heals men who were born blind and the lame can walk and the the deaf can hear, and, and, and all of that is occurring to undo the effects of the fall of man. And that's the beauty of the gospel. In the consummation of the age, when Jesus comes back, he will deal with all sin. And that when we think about the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth, the new city of Jerusalem, you know, we will live together in a sinless place in, in beautiful relationships that are restored because of what Jesus has done. Now, Jesus is saying these things, but he's causing division because the Jews are not understanding this. Now, let's jump into this. We see that there is division externally and uh, regarding the gospel. How do we see that occurring? Now, let's jump back up to the previous, uh, I'm going to spend most of our time in that previous paragraph here, because I think that this is one of the the greatest passages um, that you can ever memorize. When we think about the gospel, Jesus is talking to the Jews, and he says this to them. I told you, you do not believe. The works are, I told you that you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, when he says, you are not among my sheep, Therefore, um, some people will hear that they don't believe so that they're not among his sheep. But actually what he says is that you are not among my sheep. Notice what he says. In the scriptures it says that you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He says this, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, when we think about these things, there's this idea that that these Jews who were hearing and actually had seen the miracles of Jesus, that they were not believing. And there was a hardness of heart, and what we would call that is we would actually call that sort of a, a spiritual deadness that they were actually incapable of actually believing in Jesus. And and, and quite frankly, what the scriptures say from Ephesians chapter 2 or even from John 3, that unless you're born again, out of your deadness, you're not going to believe in God. You're not going to believe that Jesus is the Savior. It's very clear 
from this passage as well as from John chapter 6 or John chapter 17. That we are dead in our sins and trespasses until God regenerates us, until the Spirit of God begins to work in us so that we believe and understand. And Jesus says to them, he goes, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep, now now he's speaking about those who do believe, that those who have, um, have been, the Spirit of God has been working within them, they hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Now, the beauty of that is, and then he goes on to say, I give them eternal life. Let, let me give you a couple thoughts here as we work through what is the gospel. First, the gospel is a gift. Salvation is a gift, and he gives it. He gives it to us. You don't earn it. You don't merit it. But rather, it is a gift from God. James Boyce says this, if it were earned, it would be wages. If it were merited, it would be a reward. But eternal life is neither of these. It is a gift, which means that it originates solely in God's good, w- good will toward men. Now, not only is salvation seen as a gift in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life. But I also want you to see this, is that when you are the sheep, when you are a sheep of Jesus, you hear the call of the Savior and you will follow. We talked about it a few weeks ago. We call that effectual calling. It's so that when, when the Savior calls you by name, you're drawn to him because you know that there is no place to go except to Jesus. You see, salvation is not only a gift, we also, certainly, we must respond to the gospel. Everyone that hears the gospel must respond, and yet we respond because we've been born again. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 says, everyone who believes has been born of God. So your response is because you've been born again and because Jesus calls you to himself. You see, that's the nature of saving faith. There's a, saving faith has you know, several things about it, uh, but one of the things as I've heard different commentators say and different pastors is that there's the faith of our hands. <laughs> and the faith of our hands means this, is that you actually receive eternal life as a gift. The faith of our hands is that you receive it, but you also have faith of your ears, meaning that you hear the call of Jesus and you respond. You hear Jesus and you want to be near him. I mean, it's very similar to a sheep. I guess the shepherd image from John chapter 10 is that a sheep will only eat, or I'm sorry, a sheep will only lay down and rest if it is um, fed and if it knows that there is no harm that will come to it. Otherwise, they're too skittish, and they won't lie down and rest. And that's very similar with us, is that when we hear the Savior calling us, we want to be near Jesus because we know that there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. There's only one place that we can go to have security. There's only one person that will never let you down. Only one. That person is Jesus. 
But not only do we have faith of our hands to receive the gift, not only do we have faith of our ears to hear it and respond, but we also have um, what, what is described as faith of our feet, okay? Faith of our feet. And the faith of our feet looks like this when it says in John chapter 10, um, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And there's this idea that, that if you are you know, exhibiting faith, you will receive the gift. You will hear and listen, but you will also do the things that Jesus has called you to do. You will also follow in his ways, follow his pattern, follow and, and obey his commands. You see, if you love Jesus, you will obey his commands and love what he loves and hate what he hates. And that's a struggle for us. This is a struggle for me. Because I often don't love Jesus the way I'm called to. I love myself. And I love what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it, rather than obeying the commands of Jesus. But if we are called by God, if we are his sheep, then we will obey his commands. See, that's what saving faith looks like in the life of a believer. That's what security looks like. Um, but what do we do when our security is threatened? You see, you know, not only does Jesus bring division among the Jews and the Gentiles, those who do believe and not, those who are of his fold and not of his fold, but there is actually uh, within us what I would call a war among the, the flesh and the spirit of God going on. And there's division that we struggle with. Let me, let me give you an example of that. Have you ever felt fearful? Have you ever felt like your security was being compromised? Uh, this past week, um, actually, yeah, I guess it was this past week, my daughter called us from, from school and she uh, had gone out to her, her car and her car had been broken into. She had actually had kept the doors locked, but her car had been broken into and they had stolen, you know, some, some petty cash and a sweatshirt and her watch. And, and I could tell from, from Hannah that she said, I feel very violated. I feel very, in, un, you know, very unsecure in the midst of this. Have you ever felt that way? Or um, in the midst of your own salvation, thinking about who Jesus is, have you ever thought, do I really believe? Do I really believe enough? Have I done something that would cause God to not love me? Um, our security is threatened. I remember um, one of the times that was probably most um, unnerving for me in terms of my own security was uh, when I had, uh, was, had gone to a, a Detroit Tigers baseball game. And after the game, and, and this is back in like, I guess, 2006, 2007, the city of Detroit had not undergone any kind of renaissance at this point. And I remember thinking like, I'm going to save a little bit of money. I went to an afternoon game, met a buddy of mine who was a, another pastor out from Kalamazoo. We met, went to the game. And I remember I'm going to save a few bucks. And I'm going to park far away from the stadium where there's free parking, free parking. And I remember getting out of the stadium and I remember walking down. And, and initially I was with a, a large group of people. And then all these people started to peel off to their cars. 
And then I recognized that I was the only person walking down Woodward Avenue, which is the major thoroughfare of Detroit, but there was nobody around me for two blocks one way and two blocks the other way. And I recognized at this point, all of the images of my untimely death came up. And I remember what the FBI agent who actually went to our church said. He goes, I don't go to downtown Detroit by myself and I carry a gun with me at all times. And as I was walking, I began to walk a little bit quicker, a little bit quicker, and I began to think, I just need to get, it's 4.30 in the afternoon, okay? It's 4.30, it's not nighttime, it's 4.30 in the afternoon, I'm walking down a major, uh, major thoroughfare, but I felt very, very unsafe. And I decided that probably 10 or 15 bucks worth of parking is probably worth, you know, what, was, what it was costing me as I was going back to my car. And what happens in the midst of our own faith is that sometimes we, we worry that something might actually separate us from the love of God in Christ. That we get worried because of our security. I mean, when we think about Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39, it says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? goes on to say, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, in the midst of this salvation passage, there is this wonderful promise that occurs in verse 28, where Jesus says, I give them eternal life. That's the gift I give. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Meaning that if you are of Christ's fold, if you are a sheep of Jesus, then Jesus has you, and nothing can extricate you from his grip. I remember thinking about uh, having young children, and, and at the time, we had Benjamin, Hannah, and Olivia. This is pre-William, uh, and they were all very, very small. And I remember thinking, like, I can actually go to the grocery store, help my wife out. But the problem was, I had Olivia in one arm, I had Hannah in another arm, and I had Benjamin, who was probably all of, like, maybe four, Right? And I was at the grocery store, and I remember thinking, how am I going to walk across the parking lot uh, safely with these children and everything that I have? And so what I would say is, I would say, Benjamin, I've got Hannah, I've got Olivia, I need you to grab my pocket so I can feel you, okay? And I said, I need you to hold on to my pocket, right? Because I, I have both girls, and I need to know that you're next to me at all times, because I don't know if you know this or not, but young children are not the brightest in the midst of a parking lot, right? It seems like they run towards moving cars as opposed to moving away from them. I don't know, maybe it's just my children. I don't know. I mean, they probably picked that up from their mother. I don't know why that is, but, you know, they just want to, you know, go towards danger. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is that Jesus is actually has our hand and will not let go. I mean, it's similar to, you know, this past week we were in Virginia with this new little grandbaby. And as I'm holding the grandbaby, you know, sometimes I would put my finger down and he would grasp my finger. Well, he might be holding on to me, but you know what? I've got a hold of him. I'm holding him. And at that time, I don't, 
I, I want to protect him in the same way Jesus protects us. But he goes beyond that because in John chapter 10, verse 28, he not only says, not only do I have you, but then he says, my father who has given them to me, meaning that you, the sheep that he has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So what Jesus says is, it's almost like um, I've got your hand and the father has your hand. And what we call that uh, sometimes, or I had one person call me, he calls that the double lock. You're locked on one side and then you're locked on the other. And if you are a child of God, if you are a sheep following the shepherd, then that is good news for you. Because it doesn't mean, um, what, what it means is that you are protected and cared for and that you cannot lose your salvation. That's what it means that you will persevere to the end. Philippians says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on unto completion. So we believe that the completed work of Christ, that Jesus has me and he will not let me go. Those who have true faith will never be let go. And those people who seem to wander away from Christ, I would say they never had true faith. Now, it reminds me of the song that um, we've heard. Uh, we, we don't sing it very often. I don't know if we've ever sang it, but you know the song. You know, um, I remember from my, my church growing up, um, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. You know, there's the, the third verse. It says, what have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. And you go, leaning, leaning. I'm not even going to sing it, but safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. But it's not just leaning. We're leaning and we're being held. And we're not just being held by Jesus. We're being held by the Father as well. I mean, if I could... If I could illustrate it in this way, it would be as if, you know, my, my wife is holding our new grandbaby, and then I am then covering both of them and hugging them both. So that he is not only protected by his grandmother, but also by me. You see, if you're a believer in Christ, you're being held. Now, the struggle that we have internally, and the struggle that I think that we have against is that, you know, when it says, you know, in Romans chapter 8, you know, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things um, present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. The implication there is that, yes, nothing can separate us, but the other implication is that all of these things conspire against us to make us feel insecure. All of those things, the world, you know, certainly men, certainly uh, Satan, certainly all of these things will seem to want to make us feel insecure. Let me give you a couple of real practical things to think about in terms of our security and thinking about the subtlety and, and, and really fighting this fight. Um, you know, Expect subtlety from all of those things, from the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. 
You don't, um, I'm reading from Ed Welch. Um, he says, expect subtlety. Don't expect heads to turn 360 degrees from a small girl like in The Exorcist. Instead, expect well-timed questions and appeals that ring true, both when times are good as they were in Eden and when times are hard as they were in the wilderness. There are times when you will doubt your security, that you will doubt the fact that Jesus has you and the enemy will work through subtle means. Or how about expect accusations in the midst of your insecurity that God is stingy? Satan's opening words are, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He questions God's words, goodness and generosity. Often he waits until we have lost something dear to us because that's when the stinginess accusation has the most resonance. How does the Apostle Paul respond? God rains lavish grace on us. He holds back no good thing. Brothers and sisters, do you think that God is stingy? Or do you th think of him as he is? Or is it worth it? Is it really worth following Jesus? Is it really worth going to church and being a part of this community of faith? Is it really worth the benefit? You know, does, does the, um, is the juice worth the squeeze, if you will? Expect suggestions that the consequence for sin are overstated and its benefits understated. Satan's next words to Eve are, you will surely not die. Then he goes on to say that there will be benefits to her sin. He sticks with the theme that God is stingy and hints that God is deceptive. We hear echoes of this in Psalm 73, where the psalmist is on the brink of spiritual insanity when he sees bad people prosper. And we hear echoes of the myth of sin's benefits in every single sinful act and thought. Paul counters this with, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for, for whatever one sows, that also one will reap. We also get to the point in our lives sometimes where we feel like God is not with us, that he's removed his presence from us. That's, that's the trouble in Exodus chapter 33, the chapter that we read, because after the sin of idolatry and the golden calf, and after God you know, calls the people to grind up the golden calf and to actually drink it and eat it you know, to deal with idolatry, then, then he says, I will remove my presence, but I'll send an angel ahead. And the people go, no, Lord, please do not remove your presence from us. We cannot go forward without your presence. We feel like God is distant from us, that God will not be near us. But God says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Brothers and sisters, sometimes the most difficult battle that we battle with is in our own hearts and in our own minds. That's why when Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, one of the pieces that we are called to put on is the helmet of salvation. So that you know that you are saved from your sins that you are rescued and redeemed and justified and adopted into the family of God. You see, we, we need to know these things in such a deep way that we can battle even internally with the doubts and the fears and the insecurity. You see, all those things that conspire against us want to divide us from fellowship and relationship with our Savior.
And they go even further because they want to make a Christian who walks into church weak and fearful and despondent rather than hopeful. Brothers and sisters, what do you believe about your eternal security? Do you believe that anything can rip you from the grasp of Jesus? Do you believe that God will not fulfill his promises? If there's doubt, then trust and think upon what Jesus has done for you. Again, let me conclude with this. My, um, my good friend Bob uh, was the first person I'd ever heard said that John chapter 10, verse 28 was the double lock. And, and, and Bob was a, uh, an Oklahoma State grad who joined the Navy. <laughs> and I met him after he had retired as a captain in the Navy. And he'd retired as you know, vice president from Coca-Cola and some other things. And, and he said, look, I didn't understand it. He goes, I didn't understand it. And I had been, uh, I grew up around Christianity and it was 10 years into the Navy and I got home from a cruise and my, my wife, Leslie said, I want to go to church and I want to bring the girls to church because I believe in Jesus. And he said, I don't believe in any of that stuff. And his wife led him to church and he gave his life to the Lord and in the midst of being in the Navy and thinking about all the things that he had done, all the foolish things that he had done, he came to this verse and he said, I needed this verse so bad because I needed to know that God loved me and that he was not going to let me go. You see, I just don't need one lock. I need two locks to feel secure. It's not just that you're turning the door lock. You got the deadbolt as well. Because I need to know that I cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. One of the ways that we see this occurring, one of the ways that we are called to remember is through the sacraments, these signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And what we have in front of us here is, is bread and, and juice, fruit of the vine. And you see this bread represents Jesus' body, which is broken for you. And this fruit of the vine, this juice represents his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So when we think about our salvation, we go, no, our salvation is a gift for us, but it was costly because it cost the very Son of God in our place as our substitute, as the sacrifice. And when Jesus was on the cross, and he said, it is finished. What he's saying is, I have paid in full for all your sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read the words of institution that the apostle Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, believer, why do we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? Because it is through the death of Jesus that we are saved. We remember that we are saved not by merit, not by our own good works, but rather through what Jesus has done for us. 
And that is so comforting because every time we come forward and every time we drink and eat of these elements, we're reminded that we are held by Jesus, that we are secure in the Father's grasp, and that we are loved far greater than we can ever imagine. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this bread and for this juice. And that, Father, they will always remain bread and juice. But, Father, you pour forth spiritual benefit upon your people every time we take this supper. Father, we were reminded of what Jesus has done. We were reminded of the cost of our salvation. And, Father, we proclaim his death. We proclaim his death because in his death we are saved. Because he died the death that we deserved. And he lived the life that we should have lived. And, Father, through his righteousness we are saved. Father, thank you for his good works. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he not only saves us, but he keeps us and he holds us. Father, we, we, we may be tempted to let go of Jesus, but Father, he will not let go of us. Even when we're prone to wander into oncoming traffic, he holds on to us. Father, help us. Help us to believe. And Father, help us to fight the fight that sometimes is not only external, but is also internal. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.